pick up where we left off last week in the middle of verse 19 of Acts chapter 9, to which I invite your attention with me. Acts chapter 9, verse 19. Last week we saw the conversion of Paul in that dramatic encounter between the risen Christ and him on the road to Damascus. Paul, or Saul, whichever you please, since Saul is simply the Hebrew name and Paul his Roman name. Uh, We know him, of course, as Paul because of uh, his use of that name among the Gentiles. But uh, I say Paul found himself on that road because he was going to Damascus to arrest and to extradite Christian converts back to Jerusalem or to Jerusalem for trial and punishment for their faith, simply for believing in Jesus, being followers of Christ. We're reminded every Lord's Day in this house, are we not? We just were. Uh, just a few seconds ago, that Christians still suffer around the globe for the very same reason. Every week we pray for another country where people are harassed, tortured, or killed for their faith in Jesus today. That's what Saul was doing. He was on his way to Damascus, breathing murderous threats when Jesus met him in the way and took away his bad breath, so to speak. Christ took him captive while he was seeking to take Christ captive. Or at least Christ's followers, which, as Jesus informed him, was equivalent to persecuting him. So close is the relationship between Jesus and us, his people, his church, which Paul would later describe as the body of Christ. Don't you wonder if maybe that metaphor came even from this Damascus Road experience. At any rate, Saul has now been converted by the grace of God that met and transformed him on that road. He spent three days on the street called Straight, which, by the way, you can still visit in Damascus today. And because the encounter left him blind, Ananias, a Christian disciple in Damascus, has visited him laid his hands on him, restored his sight, and has welcomed him into the church through the waters of baptism. And that is where we pick up now in the middle of verse 19, after we pray. Father in heaven, transport us back, we ask, that we may see how you deal with and love and care for a new convert to the faith. And seeing that, learn how you also lovingly Lead us, new converts and old alike. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. For some days, Acts 19, verse 19, for some, Acts 9, verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. 
When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. The Hellenists were the uh, Greek-speaking Jews. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. We already made the point last week that Paul is something of a model for us as Christians. He certainly is the outstanding example of a Christian in the New Testament, a pattern of life and godliness, including the same struggles that Christians face and have always faced. How often have I not reminded you in this sanctuary and in private conversations of the war that Paul had raging within him between the good that he would do and the bad that was always right there in his members, even late in his life and ministry. Uh, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. We've had the same struggles because we're in the same boat. Paul has become for us a point of reference for what it means to be a Christian and what such a life should look like. So why not consider this morning what the first days and years of his new life as a Christian were made of with a view toward applying a couple of lessons to ourselves? Why not draw something for new converts in particular, those who find themselves recently drawn by Christ into his body, the church, into the kingdom of God. I think in the process we'll find something for you old converts too. You who have been Christians for years and years, maybe all your lives. First, we learn the importance of of solitude in a Christian life. It may not be clear here in Luke's account, but Paul makes some autobiographical comments in his letter to the Christians in Galatia that help to fill out the details a little bit of his early days after the Damascus Road event. Recalling this history of his conversion, he writes in Galatians, You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous I was for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who 
called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Almost immediately... After his conversion and after those many days, as Luke puts it, of preaching in Damascus, Paul went into Arabia. We understand that he spent a a few years in that desert silence before returning to Damascus. What was he doing? Well, we don't know for sure, but it does seem reasonable to expect that during that time he had some solitude, some Time alone, alone with God, thinking, praying, having fellowship with the Lord. And it also seems reasonable to surmise that it was there that the foundations were laid of the convictions that would carry him through many, many difficult and intense years of ministry. What must have been running through his mind and heart? During those days and months. Well, judging from his letters that are contained in our Bibles, we can be sure that he thought about at least two things. He thought about who Christ is, and he thought about who he is in Christ. Of course, he knew who Christ is, he knew already, he knew at the instant he met him on the road to Damascus. In fact, he he knew before that, he knew intellectually who Christ is because he'd likely heard all about him during the three years of Jesus' ministry. Remember that Paul and Jesus were roughly contemporary. Well, they were contemporaries. He had heard the claims about Jesus. He heard about the miracles. He had heard that he called himself the Son of God. He knew all of that. In his mind, and he hated Jesus for what he knew about him. Hated him bitterly. As a faithful Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and the Pharisees, you remember, are what we might call the conservative wing of Judaism in that day. I say, as a faithful Pharisee, the popularity of Jesus to him would have been a thorn in his side long before that other thorn that the Lord gave him to keep him from becoming conceited. He knew the claims that had been made by his followers that Jesus had risen from the dead. But with this encounter with the risen Christ himself on the road to Damascus, all that he knew in his head intellectually and hated... He now knew in his heart and loved and embraced for himself. We know that he knew who Christ is after his conversion, of course, because he started preaching him right away. Right there in Damascus, where he had originally come to persecute Jesus, now he is preaching Jesus. In the synagogues, verse 20, saying he is the Son of God. He confounded the Jews, verse 22, proving that Jesus was the Christ. Those things were true, of course. 
And they continue to be true. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. That is the anointed Savior. For Christ means anointed. Our Savior indeed. But Paul's letters are the demonstration that he came to know so much more of Christ. He came from his reflection on scripture. He came to understand that Jesus shared something in common with Adam. The first man created by God. Both stood as representatives for others. Adam represented the whole human race. When when Adam ate the forbidden fruit, he acted not only for himself, but for all of us, for all of mankind. For every person who ever lived, for every person who ever will live, save one. As the New England primer, the first reading primer of the American colonies in a foundational textbook for American education taught in rhyme, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. That doctrine we learn especially well from Paul, whose study of Scripture revealed to him this federal relationship between us and Adam and the federal relationship between us and Christ. When Adam fell into sin, we fell with him. His penalty is our penalty. We died with Adam, the first Adam, when he ate the forbidden fruit. But Paul came to understand there's another Adam, a second Adam, and we are made alive in this Adam through faith in him. In his letter to the Romans, Paul writes, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. In the solitude of study, in the quiet fellowship he had with God, in his word, Paul came to know who Christ is. He learned that Christ is the second Adam, our federal or representative head for salvation. He also learned that Christ is our ransom, that he paid the price for our sin with his own life and blood, rendered over and shed for us on the cross, as he wrote to a young pastor by the name of Timothy. He came to know Christ as the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb that has been sacrificed, slain for us, as he wrote to the Christians in Corinth. He came to know Jesus as mediator and intercessor between us and the Father, at the right hand of the Father, enthroned as priest and king. He came to know him as the cosmic Christ, the one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And as the king who is ruling over all things for the church. It was in solitude that Paul learned these things in studying God's word, in quieting himself before God, not only at the beginning of his Christian life, but all through his life. He came to know Jesus better and better and better and learn more fully who Christ is for the rest of his life. At the same time, 
in that solitude, that same solitude, he learned who he, he is, who he himself is in Christ. He came to understand that he is a new creation, that he is a new creature. Just think, imagine now for a moment how hard it must have been for Paul to take all of this in, to wrap his mind around, around all of this. For all of his life, to this point, Paul had thought himself a good and moral and upstanding person. He was a true Pharisee in all the ways that you and I are true Pharisees by nature. He thought like we naturally do. He thought very, very highly of himself and of his obedience to the law of God. The law for Paul was the center, the touchstone, the hub of all things around which the spokes radiated. Keep the law and you will do well. And Paul actually thought that he had. And then that center, that touchstone, that hub was obliterated in the flash of light on the Damascus road. And all became clear. He was not a law keeper. He was a law breaker. He could never stand or hope to stand in the presence and in the light of the holy God and to say, I am righteous. No. When the light of God's holiness comes near to us, as it has for those of you who are Christians, as it will for all of us on the judgment day to come, it only serves to point out the blackness and the darkness of our souls. For all of Paul's efforts to live by the rules of his Pharisaical sect, he was actually that much more a breaker of God's law. Not less, more. The law that requires of us that we love God above all, with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. When the commandment came, Paul writes, sin sprang up and I died. The law shows you and shows me how helpless You are to make yourself right with God. How even if you obey God on the outside, you're not really obeying him unless you're obeying him on the inside with your hearts and your thoughts and your motives, your attitudes. Covetousness was the one law in particular that showed Paul the sin of his heart, particularly because covetousness is so much a sin of the heart. 
But in quiet solitude, Paul also came in touch with who he is in Christ. When the Spirit of God came into his heart, he did not come to Paul as some sort of great coach, nor did he come to you to teach you to be a better person, to conform more to the law of God at first. He didn't come to convince him to turn over a new leaf. He doesn't come to you to teach you to to try harder and to be nicer. That's not why the Holy Spirit came to you. He came to you like he came to Paul to transform you. To totally change you from the inside out. To make of you a completely new creature. A new creation in Christ. This too Paul came to understand better as he studied, for example, the prophet Ezekiel's doctrine of how God has given us a heart of flesh in the place of our heart of stone. He came to understand that Jesus had come to him not to improve the old man, but to slay him and to make him a new man. So Paul came to know this. He came to know Christ, yes, but he came to know himself in Christ, which, by the way, became, as you know, a favorite expression of his, in Christ. He came to understand that in Christ and with Christ, we who believe in him have died. In union with Christ, we've also risen together with him in Christ. That we've even ascended into heaven with Christ and in Christ. By the way, it was in solitude that Paul was transported to the third heaven. He came to understand that it was not he, but Christ living in him that was the important thing. I have been crucified with Christ It's no longer I who live, Paul wrote, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And true Christians today know and live the same way. All of this happened when he was in solitude, alone with God. So it is of terrible importance that new converts, those who have come to know God, who have been remade into new creatures by God's Spirit, who has come into them, terribly important, I say, that they find time and spend time in solitude, if for no other reason that they may come to know Christ better and come to know themselves in Christ better. But that same Council holds for you old converts too. Who of us would not benefit greatly in a day such as ours, surrounded and inundated as we are by distractions and almost constant noise 
The radio in our cars, the CD players, the Game Boys, the Walkmans, the video games, the television. Who would not benefit from regular times set apart for solitude, for reflection, for meditation, for time alone with God in prayer and in the word? This, too, is an emphasis of the Bible and one that we need to pay attention today. Pay attention to today. Matthew Henry said that there are two doors that we must close when we go to be with God. The door of our room so that we might be alone. And the door of our heart so that we might be serious. Today there's not so much a problem closing the one Well, I guess we have problems closing both of them, don't we? Closing the one is difficult because even when you close the door on your room, there's the noise of the television and the radio in the next room. And closing the doors of our hearts to be serious is also very difficult for all the distractions there too. But for all the emphases that the emphasis that the Bible places on what we're doing here right now, and it says all sorts of things about the importance of coming together to worship God corporately, it also has much to say and reminds us over and over again of an Elijah at the brook, Cherith, of Paul in the desert, of Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Quietly with the Lord. There to teach us about himself and to teach us about ourselves in him. Here's J.S. Stewart and his counsel to pastors in particular. Once there was lived upon this earth a life of terrible self-giving, yet of utmost serenity. Do not we who grow so hectic often and strained and tired and overburdened long to share the secret of Christ's peace? It was the secret known to the mountaintops where he outwatched the stars. To the olive trees in the garden which heard his voice at midnight. To the winds and waves that were his shrine while he communed with God. How shall any man be strong to do Christ's work today with the purposefulness and passion and mastery of life that shine on every page of the Gospels if he neglects Christ's hidden secret? My brothers and sisters, new converts and old alike, we must find time for that kind of solitary fellowship with God, even if it means sacrificing other things, maybe even sleep. First, solitude. Second, suffering. And on this second point, I will be brief. We've considered it before here in Acts and in Luke before that. New converts to Christ must know that they've not been converted to a life of ease. We're called to suffer. And old converts sometimes need to be reminded of this too, don't we? 
sometimes old converts lose their fight and they want to slow down and, and sort of get comfortable and line their nests, quit fighting the battles, avoiding the continuing sacrifice that must mark a genuine Christian life. And I cringe to hear them, don't you? Those television preachers who promise people if they become Christians, why, all of their problems will just disappear. You know, life will become happy, happy, happy all the time. And of course, some of their problems, the greatest of their problems, will disappear. The guilt of their sin, the separation between themselves and God. But becoming a Christian as you seasoned Christians know, is in some ways just the beginning of the problems and the difficulties and the battles and the suffering. And the Bible's not shy to to make it clear to us that that's the case. When Paul entered the kingdom of God, his friends did not become former friends. They became present and active enemies. The Jews who had been his allies were now his would-be assassins. As an unbeliever, Saul enjoyed power and prestige and the praise of men. Now he would be despised and so powerless that the disciples had to lower him from the city wall in a basket. From hunter to hunted, Paul went because he became a Christian. Don't tell those people for whom we pray in other countries where they are dismembered and raped and killed for being Christians that converting will make their problems disappear. They know better. You and I just happen to live in a place in history and geography where Christians are not oppressed by our own government. Though even here, Christians do suffer some loss, real loss, for the sake of the faith, and increasingly so, it seems, these days. And if things do not change, more so in the days soon to come. All of that because God is making of us more and more the kind of Christians that he has called us to be, that Jesus died to make us to be, that we want to be, and that we will want to have been on the judgment day. And all of that will mean pain and sacrifice of some sort and more in direct proportion to your usefulness to him. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He said, it's doubtful that God can bless a man greatly unless he has hurt him deeply. Church history is the living testimony to that truth. Look almost anywhere in 2,000 years of the Christian church or in the history of the church before that in Scripture, and you'll find that it is so. Virtually everywhere you find a Christian hero, you find her suffering. You find him sacrificing, even to great pain for the faith. Blandina 
tossed by the bulls after excruciating tortures. Perpetua going to her death in the full flood of maternal affection, leaving her nursing infant behind. Bunyan or Rutherford in jail. Calvin running for his life. Luther with a bounty on his head and marked for death by the Pope himself. Bonhoeffer in prison and then on the scaffold. When such noble lives are nearly finished, saints like that can say with Paul, I have fought the good fight. So tell me, you converts to the faith, new and old, how are you fighting the good fight? How are you fighting your sins and the flesh and the world and Satan? What, what is your faith costing you? Those will be good questions for you to ask yourself in a time of solitude, maybe this afternoon, maybe sometime this week. When on your knees in the silence with God, ask him to show you how and where you must suffer loss for heaven's gain. And then, having gone to your knees in weakness, rise from them with the strength that God gives for you to fight the good fight with all thy might, remembering who Christ is and who you are in Christ. Amen.